in her speech accepting the Cecil B. DeMille Award for Lifetime Achievement, uh, Oprah Winfrey recently at the Golden Globes uh, talked about, and I'm quoting here, the insatiable dedication to uncovering the absolute truth that keeps us from turning a blind eye to corruption and to injustice. And then she went on to say, and I will quote again, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. Now, I'm not sure that Oprah meant it this way, but the equivalence of absolute truth and your truth is made all the time in our culture. But the reality is that absolute truth doesn't necessarily correspond to your truth. And the question is whether or not there is absolute truth. Because if there is, then your truth may or may not be the same. And that's the problem when truth is private, when it is personal, when it is subjective. Now, when the Bible speaks of truth, it always speaks of absolute truth. Truth that God has revealed, truth that God has declared, and truth that God has determined. So the question is whether or not our truth matches up with God's truth. And that's an issue that the Apostle John raises in his letter of 1 John, which is where we're studying. So I want to read the passage that we're going to look at this morning, and then we'll go back over in some detail. So if you would turn in your Bible uh, to 1 John chapter 3, if you want to buy, grab a Bible in the seat back, page 1303. In 1 John, and we're going to start in chapter 3. And verse 23. And then we're going to read on down through chapter 4 and verse 6. So starting up at verse 23, 1 John 3, John says, And this is his commandment, that we are believing in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, we need to remember what the situation was like at the time that John is writing this letter. In the early church, there was a surging of life in the Spirit. But this brought its own perils. It, you know, it comes from the fact that the church was dynamically alive. And probably the greatest peril that was facing them was determining whether things were from God and of God or not. 
uh, in the church there, was, where there were so many and, and, and such diverse spiritual manifestations that some criteria, some tests had to be devised to tell whether it was truth or error. So let's just think about some of those things that were going on because it sets the stage for what John is writing. First of all, even in Old Testament times, there were false prophets who exhibited spiritual power. Probably one of the greatest examples, if you remember back in the book of Exodus, is when Moses goes to Pharaoh and makes this demand of Pharaoh from God, let my people go. And he'd been instructed by God to perform some miracles until he took his staff and he threw it down on the ground and became a snake. As a kid, I was fascinated with that. That was, <laughs> tried it, didn't work. Uh, but then Pharaoh summoned his wise men and sorcerers and told them to throw down their staffs. And what happened? They became serpents. Now, we do know that Moses' serpents ate the other ones, so there's a good ending to it. But they had, they had spiritual powers that they exhibited. God actually warned his people about that. Look at this from Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you've not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. People that could exhibit divine power, spiritual powers, and yet in evil for what they were trying to do. Now, in the early years of the church, people had a very immediate sense of the spiritual, of a spiritual world, of spiritual power. You know, most of the people at that time in the world uh, believed not only humans, but also the world was filled with demons and with spirits and with spiritual powers. And so every rock, every river, every mountain had its own god, its own demon that was there. And so the ancient world was very conscious of a spiritual power, of a personal nature, this power of evil. The whole universe, and you can even see it in secular writings, was a battleground between the forces of light and the forces of darkness between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And you always have this conflict that's going on, even in mythology. But the result was that not only in the universe, but in the heart of the mind, in people's lives, there was this conflict, good and evil, light and dark. One other thing that we ought to also say is that at this time, there was a much more visible manifestation of the spirit in the lives of early believers and in the work of the church. Signs and wonders. Read the early chapters of Acts and just look at everything that was going on. This was part, probably by the end of the century, it had waned somewhat, but there was certainly the memory of all of that. And so the early church was full of visible power and the life of the Spirit. It was clearly a great age, but the exuberance came with some dangers. The real 
could be counterfeited. The real could turn into a counterfeit. Evil people could use evil power. And people could delude themselves into a subjective experience in which they thought, maybe even honestly, that it was really from God. And that's what we want to consider this morning. How do I sort out truth and error? How do I distinguish between the real and the counterfeit? And John puts it in the context of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Look back into the text again at the end of chapter 3 and verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And he lists those two tests, which are given here once again, just like they were in chapter 2, to know Again, whether it's real. First, he says to believe. That word carries with it the idea of obedience. And the other is to love. So the first is attitude. It's internal. That word believe means to rely upon, to trust in, to commit to. And then the second is external. It's action, it's conduct, it's obedience. And John says that there is the fact that the true believer abides in God and God abides in him. Amazing truth. And I'm wondering here if John may not be recalling the way that the master spoke to the disciples when they were in the upper room in Jerusalem hours before his betrayal and then his ultimate death. So keep your finger in 1 John and flip back a few books to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Page 1146. So Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, and John, in his gospel account, gives us this extended discourse that Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, we also have the high priestly prayer there in John 17. But let's just look at what he says. I'm starting in John chapter 14 and verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows me. You know him, for he dwells with you, and now this is new truth to them, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Remember in the Old Testament economy, the Holy Spirit generally did not indwell people. The Holy Spirit would come upon people, specific people, empower them for a specific task, but it was never permanent. That's why David, in Psalm 51 when he's praying this amazing prayer of contrition and confession after he had been exposed by Nathan the prophet from his adultery and murder of, of, of Bathsheba's husband. And he says this, after having said against thee, the only way I sin, he prays that says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That was a real thing. The Holy Spirit would come and would go. But something happens when we cross Pentecost, the line of Pentecost in the New Testament. This Holy Spirit now is in the promise of Jesus in you, and it's that sense of permanence. Now look at verse 23. 
Jesus answered him and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now let's look on to John 17. Jesus turns his attention to his Father in heaven, and he prays, and obviously the Holy Spirit inspired John later to recall these words and to put them down on paper. But John chapter 17, and I'm going to start reading at verse 20. John 17 and verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that is, those men, those disciples that were them, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Do you realize you're in the Bible? There you are, right there. That's you. Those who believe because of their word. And we stand in the line of apostolic witness that goes all the way back to those disciples. So I'm also praying for you, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. I could take a rab- relevant rabbit trail right here. Uh, I shan't do it long. But you realize what Jesus was saying, that the Father loves you as much as he loves the Son? Would you let that sink in just a little bit? If you question God's love, would you just let those words of Jesus himself settle your mind? Now go back to 1 John. Because what John does here at the end of 1 John 3 is he says this is the established fact for every believer. He says, by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The fact of the Spirit's indwelling of every Christian gives evidence of the faith of the one who's believed in Christ. Every true believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's a truth that it seems the evangelical church has sort of rediscovered. There was always a fear that we would either, you know, be concerned that we were now becoming charismatic or Pentecostal. And so they downplayed the role of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is the Holy Spirit of God comes to live within you the moment you place your trust in Christ. And God himself, you know yourself, you look really nice today, but I know inside you're not a really nice person. None of us are. It's called sin. But the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. We're going to talk again about some more significance of that in a little bit. But this is all what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the church uh, in Rome. And he says this, look at Romans chapter 8. It's on the screen. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The presence of the Spirit in your life is evidence of the fact that you belong to him, that you are his child. That's a wonderful gift that Jesus promised his disciples and all who would come from their witness, as he did in the upper room. So here's the question then that's at the heart of the matter. How do I know for certain that this spirit is the spirit of truth and not the spirit of error? 
So John gives a warning. It's in chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not everything you see out there is from God. Not everything is truth. And we're called upon to be discerning, judging truth from error. And amid all the wonder of spiritual activity of that world, of the early church, John puts out one final test. And for him, the heart, the core of Christian belief, is summed up in one great statement. We find it in the introduction of his gospel, chapter 1, when he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Any spirit which denies the reality of the Incarnation, that is, that God took on human flesh in Jesus, is not from God. And there are two aspects of this test of belief. First of all, for something to be of God, a spirit must acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And to deny that is to deny three things about Jesus. It is to deny that Jesus is the center of history. It's a denial that he is the one from whom all of history before his life was preparing for this is the one in whom God chooses through a man, Abraham, a nation of Israel. Through them comes a redeemer, this Jesus. Second is to deny that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. The Jewish people, through all of their difficulties and struggles, clung to this promise of a redeemer, of a Messiah. And to deny the incarnation, then, is to say that none of those promises came true. They were just baloney. Third, it is to deny the kingship of Jesus. Remember that Jesus came not just to be a sacrifice, but to eventually rule in a kingdom. He came not only to bear a cross, but he also came to lay the foundation of a kingdom. And that's what we today in this church age look forward to when he will return again and set up his eternal kingdom. Now the second aspect of this test is this. For something to be of God, a spirit must acknowledge that Jesus had come in the flesh. This is precisely, and we've talked about this, this is exactly what the Gnostics couldn't accept. To them, matter was evil, and therefore the body was evil, and a real incarnation is impossible because you cannot have what is evil mixing with what is good. God could not be tainted with the physical. And so as John sees it, to deny the reality of the incarnation is to deny the fact that Jesus was truly God and truly man. And it strikes at the root of Christian faith. To deny that Jesus was truly God and took on human flesh as Messiah has a number of consequences that are really, really big for us today. First is to deny that Jesus could really ever be our example on how to live. He made these outlandish claims about being related to God, being God himself. And if there is no incarnation, if these things are untrue, either fabricated or deluded, 
he has disqualified himself to be an example for everyone and anyone. He's a fraud. He's an imposter. Or he's a nutcase. But he's no example. It's also to deny that Jesus could be the high priest who opens the way for us to God. And so the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And without there being an incarnation, doesn't hold water. It is also to deny that Jesus can in any sense be Savior. Now why do we say that? He had to identify himself with those whom he came to save. He had to be both human and divine. He's not 50%, 50%. He's 100%, 100%. And if you can figure that out, you let me know. It's the hypostatic union, is what we call it theologically. He's, 100, he's fully divine. He's fully human in, in, in the flesh. Uh, but that's the only way that he could bring about salvation. It's the only way he can deal with the sin problem if he was truly human and truly divine. It's the only way he can deal with God's justice if he's truly human and truly divine. It's also to deny the possibility of the salvation of the body. Because if you deny the fact of the incarnation, you deny that the body can be consecrated and dedicated to God. And it would be impossible for the body to become the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's precisely what Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he said this, do you not know, and he's talking to believers, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That makes no sense. In fact, it's impossible if the incarnation is a hoax. If it isn't true, you cannot then have that mingling together. By far the most serious and terrible thing is that to deny the incarnation is to deny that there could ever be any real union between God and man, between divine and human. See, if the spirit is good and the body is evil, then God and man can never meet. It's impossible. But the great truth of the incarnation is the union of flesh and spirit of good and evil. I mean, good and, and divine. So John says the ultimate test of truth is the incarnation. This word became flesh, it dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only beloved from the Father. Now, as far as we should be concerned today, in the 21st century, the impact and meaning of John's teaching for our day comes down to what one thinks of Jesus. It's as simple as that. Now, to many, he's just a nice example, someone whose life was admirable and somebody worthy to be imitated. To others, Jesus had some nice stuff to say, you know, love your neighbors yourself, that's nice. The golden rule, be kind to others. I think if John were writing in our day and time, he might use different words, but the message would be the same. Either Jesus is who he said he was, God in the flesh, or else he's a liar, he's an imposter, he's a counterfeit. So do you want to know how to tell the truth from error in terms of religion and matters of the spirit? Find out what someone believes about Jesus. That's the question you ask him. Who is Jesus? Who is he? 
The Bible claims that God has revealed absolute truth to us, and those truths are declared in the Bible. Now listen, nothing is true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. That's what we stand on. It's there because it is God's declaration of truth. These are truths that can be tested and weighed. They are truths that are objective and public, open for scrutiny. And that's why the historical physical resurrection of Jesus is so critical. Why it's so important for us? Because that was an open public act, and we'll talk about that on Easter Sunday. But it's something, it's evidence that could be weighed and found whether to be true or not. And we keep going back to the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb. And it sets the whole stage here for truth. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted from David Wells in his book, No Place for Truth, or whatever became of, of uh, evangelical theology. So uh, let me quote something else that he says. He says, the early Christians did not preach their experience of Christ. That would have been to promote a form of religion like any of, every other form of religion. Rather, they preached the Christ of that experience. Can you get a handle on that? Their message was not their, their experience of the risen Christ. It was the risen Christ of their experience. See, it's objective. And so he goes on and say, they preached not what was internally interesting, but what was externally true. God had raised him from the dead, and this was a matter of history, not simply internal perception. The fact that God's truth was transmitted through events external to the individual meant that it was objective. And the fact that it was objective meant further that his truth was public. It was truth for the open market, truth for the nation, truth for other nations. The content of this truth could not be privatized, reduced within private consciousness. See, there's a we there is a weakness when we, when we say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life because there's a lot of people without Christ who think they've got a wonderful life. So somehow we do have to get beyond that. We do have to talk about the sin problem that everybody experiences because we've got to get down the road to objective truth that we have a problem. In fact, not only do we have a problem, God has a problem. If God is truly holy, he can't just say, well, you know, kids will be kids. That's okay. You all come into, come into my heaven anyway. He can't do that. He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be holy. And so we've got a problem. God has a problem of his justice that has to be dealt with, and that's the purpose of the cross. And God's justice is perfectly satisfied as you have the intersection of his love and his justice meeting at the cross. And that's the basis why God can, can forgive us. If the resurrection really happened, listen, if the resurrection really happened, if it was truth, then all the other claims that Jesus made must be taken as truthful. When he talked about that he was God, when he talked about the fact that his death would be sufficient for sin, when he talked about his ability alone to take us into a relationship with the Father, all of those are true if the resurrection is true. If the resurrection is not true, go home, enjoy your Sunday morning, sleeping in, okay? But we're here because we believe something that was public, something that was objective, something that was historic is what's caused us to put our trust in those things. Amen. Now John ends this section with the proof of the Spirit's impact in the life of the believer. And first of all, he says it's the experience of the power of God through his Spirit. Look in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. 
John said, little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's why we don't need to fear the evil one and evil today. Jesus says, listen, the one who lives within you, the spirit of God is greater than the one who's in the world. And that's what, if we're fearful, if we're dealing with issues in our lives, we need to keep coming back to the fact that God has declared his truth, that he lives within us. And he is greater than all. And everything we see the evil one doing as he works through evil people, is God has allowed that for a time to prosper, but he will bring it to an end. It will come. But John says that through the spirit, we are overcomers. And there's a power that is operative in us that's able to provide power for right living. So just think, just a few things, um, what this means in our daily life. is power over temptation. Because the Spirit of God lives within me, if I will trust in Him, if I will allow Him to control my life, then I can say no to temptation. I can say no to self and yes to Christ. It's also a power to love. There are a lot of people, let's be honest, that aren't very lovable. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But God, the Holy Spirit, lives within us and gives us the power to act toward them in a loving way because of Christ. Not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, but because God has called us to love them. We also have a power to obey. Rather than just to do what I want, which is self-centeredness, everything oriented around myself, the Holy Spirit gives me a power to choose to be obedient. So when God says, do this or don't do that, I set my will to his, and I say, God, give me the power to obey. Give me the power to do what's right, not just what's expedient, what's easy. John returns to this theme in the next chapter. Look over at chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. He writes, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who's the one that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The evidence of the power of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, a second proof of the impact of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is the evidence of spiritual discernment. Look, 1 John 4, verse 6. John says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever's not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There there is a discernment that accompanies the Spirit's presence in our lives. Now, the Apostle Paul addresses the same thing. I'm going to ask you to leave 1 John here, and let's turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is where I want us just to camp for just a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you've got a Seekback Bible, page 1211. Paul's dealing in this whole thing about wisdom, God's wisdom versus human wisdom. And, and then he comes down in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. And says, for who knows a person's thought except for the spirit of the person which is in him? I mean, you don't, you don't know what I'm thinking, but I know what I'm thinking. And so he says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, this is the person that doesn't know Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
the spiritual person, the one in whom Christ is dwelling and ruling in their hearts, judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's why you can understand scripture. How many times I talk to people that talk about, you know, if I read my Bible before I came to know Christ, I didn't understand it. It was just gobbledygook to me. And when they come to put their faith in Christ, all of a sudden they say, I read it and I understand it. Why? Because you've been given the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within you and he opens up your mind and your heart to understand spiritual truth. For the Christian belief in absolute truth is the foundation of discernment. And we must see in God's revelation truth by which we sort out truth from error, truth by which we let govern our lives, and truth by which we declare what God has spoken. I'm going to leave you some other thoughts with David Wells. He says, Christian faith is Christian only to the extent that it's been constituted by the word of God the word that God has made powerful and effective in the reconstituting of sinful life. Christian life is not simply an experience or a private intuition into the meaning of life on a par with other ways of looking at life. No, what makes Christian life Christian is the fact that God has actualized his truth among the foolish of this world. He leads sinners to see that he stands in his holy purposes over against much of what is taken to be normative in a fallen world. Modern experience does not provide access to God. God alone provides this access. It originates in his grace, is objectively grounded in Jesus Christ, and is open now to moderns, not through their experience of themselves, but through their acceptance of his revealed truth. It is only the objectivity of this truth, a truth that always stands outside the natural interests and detection of modernity that can lead us back to Christ. It's truth, friends. It's truth that we have to keep coming back to. Everything else may make you feel good for a while, but it's just an illusion when we jettison the truth. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we need these words from John today as those who were reading this in the first century because we know there's a lot of counterfeit spirituality out there that is far from the absolute truth that you've revealed. We thank you that we have a risen Jesus, an empty tomb that can be weighed, the evidence judged, and lead us to the conclusion that you indeed raised him from the dead. And it's based upon that truth that our faith is rational, that it is reasonable. We still have to trust in the unseen, but you've given us evidence to lead us to that conclusion. And I pray this week that you would tune in our hearts and minds to you, that we would be able to discern truth from error. And that we would set ourselves to living by the truth. That we would set ourselves to declare the truth in a loving way to others who don't know the truth. And so we thank you, Father, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. You've not left us without a witness. And that upon that, we place our trust. And we thank you that when we do that, you save us with an everlasting salvation. 
and your Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And I pray that we would know his power this week to live rightly in ways that would honor you. And I pray all these things in that matchless name of the risen Christ. Amen.